I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Dr. B.J. Miller. When an unexpected accident forces you to come face to face with your own mortality, you relate to those that are suffering. When you master it, you become a Sherpa. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Welcome to the podcast. I really do appreciate you taking the time out. I know you're a busy guy. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about how you came to palliative care. Well, I got into medicine in general. I, I was going to do rehab medicine, but I, I, uh, I it, the whole point was to exercise what I had learned as a patient and as a disabled person, and um, it was a way to make sense of my own experiences, basically as a job. Um, and, but then. So that got me into medicine, and then I uh, I was disenchanted with it, like uh, most people are at some point, and then sort of stumbled into palliative care uh, when I was doing my internship and fell in love with it. So, but uh, why I fell in love with it was really because uh, a couple things. One was I was fascinated that this is a field that wasn't trying to fix you; it was just trying to help you deal with whatever was the deal, which is really novel in medicine. Um, I love that it's completely subjective, um, that suffering is something that, are, you know, that you can't test for it. And I love that it was underdeveloped so that it was a big need to work on it and think about it. And I love that my own experiences as a, as a patient would then have purchase in this field. Like there was some relevancy to what I was interested in and what I would, had gone through. So tell me a little bit about that patient patient experience because you know to look at you it's undeniable that you at some point in your life were in great pain and you were a patient and I believe that patients see that and it opens a door to conversation but tell me a little bit about your experience um, about how you became a patient and how that kind of kicked open or opened a window for you to relate to those who are dying yeah so I mean I got injured sophomore year of college screwing around on a commuter train and I had a, I had a metal watch on and the I got close enough to electricity the, the power source that it arced to my watch and so lost both legs below the knee and one arm that you know that was a, obviously a very traumatic event and there was a great deal of pain involved with it and just a lot of coping and coming close to death and it just a, a real uh, the phrase I use is a, a cosmic spanking. Just a real, just <laughs> real smackdown. But as you point out, I mean, that, first of all, I had no interest in medicine before that. It got me turned on to healthcare and medicine as a, as a way, as an industry, as a field, as a job, as a way to contribute. Is it because of those that were at your bedside taking care of you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a really, in, in general, a very wonderful experience. Um, my family and friends really showed up. And then everyone on the professional side that I uh, got care from in New Jersey at the burn unit there and then in Chicago for rehab purposes, I feel I got an amazing care. And so it was very, I was very turned on in a positive sense. And then I was also aware of a need, an unmet need. I was from being disabled, watching my mother as a person with polio and watching the healthcare system not do well with uh, disability and chronic illness. I both, so I was attracted to it in the positive sense 
And I also knew there was a lot to a lot of work to be done. What I thought was sort of interesting, even though it was such a horrific accident, the watch still works. Your father has it, correct? Yep, you got it. Yep. He still wears it. It works. It was melted on the edges of the thing, but it still works. That's a miracle. Yep. I feel like we should be doing, I, I, I feel like I should do advertisements for them or <laughs> sponsored by them or something, but yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure you should tease about that because you might be getting a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any stories working with the dying that changed you profoundly? Um, I, I worked in hospice for quite a long time and I learned so many lessons about life from dying individuals. Is there anything that stuck out throughout your education or are you working at the Zen Hospice Project that that a patient's story stuck with you? There are many. And, and I realize also, Kim, I didn't answer your last question so much. I mean, I think it's about how does anyone who hasn't died feel relevant to uh, people who are actually dying? I mean, it's one of these funny things, as you know, in our subject, it's something where you know, we all should be concerned about in one way or another are, but None of us is really done, depending on your belief system. But I guess I got felt like I got close enough to it myself. I watched part of my body die. I saw the overlap with between just generic loss and death. And I felt uh, sort of a relationship with death after that experience, after coming very close to dying. So... Uh, but to be clear, uh, you know, any of us could say that. I don't, you know, it's not like I have special insight or special knowledge. It's just that it was of interest to me and I could see how it would be useful. And I think death's all around us if you choose to see it. So uh, I feel, I feel, um, from my experiences, I feel um, they feel relevant and I feel qualified to be doing what I'm doing. But, and I think anybody would be qualified to be doing what I'm doing. But back to your other question, Kim, I, I think, gosh, there are a lot of stories, of course, um, over the years of working in a hospital and in a clinic setting and then in a hospice setting. I was just writing about a, a person I spoke of in my TED Talk, uh, a guy named Frank, who was a longtime patient of mine, and he always comes to mind uh, pretty quickly as a standout. He died in his early 60s from prostate cancer, but he, he had lived with HIV for many, many years, and he had become a student of death in a lot of ways. And he came to my clinic, basically, at UCSF, years before his death, and basically said you know, he was there because he was afraid to die and wanted to work on it. It was remarkably proactive that way. And then that set us off on a really interesting journey together and friendship together. Really? Huh. So you had a really deep friendship with this gentleman, too. Yeah, I would say that's right. So as the former director of the Zen Hospice Project, how did it differ from other hospice organizations? And I've been, I learned recently that, that Zen Hospice really did not do reimbursement at one time, but now is doing some type of reimbursement. So that was the one thing that stuck out that made it different. But are there, what other things make the Zen Hospice Project different from other not-for-profits? Well, so, okay, so for one, a couple things. 
So in so many ways, Zen Hospice Project is a wonderful example of an early model of hospice in this country. So it, it started in 1987. It, um, it, it was a response, the San Francisco Zen Center, a, a response to the HIV and AIDS crisis here in San Francisco. <clears throat> like a lot of uh, nonprofit organizations and social service organizations got their start uh, in the 80s that way. So... Um, but so, like I say, in some ways, it's just a really shining example of an old model of hospice, which is when I say old model, I mean pretty, pretty demedicalized, um, really volunteer led in so many ways. Um, and it remains that way today. So one of its strengths is that it, it is because of this volunteer presence and by its nature and its ethos, it is very um, committed to the to, to leading with the human element. Not your MD, your stethoscope, or your uh, nursing bag of tricks, or whatever else. It's it really insists that this is a human endeavor. That living and dying is is basic and fundamental as a human event, and I think that's beautiful. I mean, I think that's right. There's no one profession or discipline that gets to claim this, you know. So that's a big thing. A second thing is, uh, and uh, kind of related, is that it is explicit, exp explicitly spiritual. So you don't have to be Buddhist to work there. I wasn't. You don't have to be Buddhist to be a patient there. But it is explicitly infused with a, a spiritual sensibility. And then I guess the other point is that it's relative. It's relatively unique because it is a place. Most hospices in this country are not places. You don't go to live and die in, in, in a hospice for the most part in this country. Most of hospice is meted out in people's homes. So the fact that it had bricks and mortar, a structure to it, a place was also novel. Um, and they still do amazing work. I haven't been there for over a year, but um, I think to your point, they don't take uh, insurance does not reimburse their services. Just to clarify, um, no residential hospice is covered by insurance at this point, although hopefully that will be changing um, at some point. And there are novel programs uh, popping up, but it is not free neither. So the, the, so residents are asked to pay what they can on a sliding scale. So it's not free per se and a lot, but most of the efforts are around philanthropy. So anyway, that's just to clarify, they don't get reimbursement from insurance, but they do ask, they do ask for some remuneration from families. At least that's the way it was last time I checked, but yeah. How do you want to change the perspective of dying? I mean, is that is that one of your goals? Because you've been, I mean, New York Times says you're the, the new innovator of end of life. But how do we change that? Or how do you want to change the death and dying perspective? For, for one, like, I don't think of myself that way. I think that like you and I and many, many other people uh, are disinterested in dealing with the reality of being a human being. And part of that reality is suffering and dying. And therefore, I'm interested in it. And I do happen to have, for all the reasons we're talking, some... I uh, uh, sort of I'm sitting on a subject that's that is ascending right now with our population aging, et cetera. And there's an opening, I think, to think about death and to talk about it. And I think that's wonderful. But I don't see myself necessarily as leading that uh, effort. I think wonderfully, it's a very diffuse effort. I do think San Francisco. There's something in the water there between you, Jessica Zeter, Don Gross, Shoshana, 
Unger Leiter. I mean, there's so many people that are looking at death in a such a different way. Yeah, there is something going on around here. The Bay Area does sort of suit the place in, in temperament in some way. Uh, there and, and UCSF has a really wonderful palliative care program. My boss there, Mike Rabo, does amazing work. And I've you know, and many people before me and hospice agencies around here, et cetera, do wonderful work. So there is a lot of activity going on in the Bay Area. That's true. Um, and so there's something going on. But um, yeah, I, I think f- for me to answer your question, I, I, I'm really interested in a couple things. One is that that this be an excuse for healthcare to engage with its public differently. And that uh, th- that because everyone everyone has uh, something to say about this subject is it's a democratizing force so you know healthcare industry really struggling to figure out what it's oriented is it oriented around diseases or is it oriented around people that's a very different question and if we're going to be oriented oriented around people which i think we need to be well Healthcare needs to talk to people, and people need to talk to healthcare. It's not the thing that it's not a one-way street as it has been traditionally. And this subject has a way of cracking open traditional uh, habits of healthcare. It's the limitations of what can be done in medicine. So, it, with this subject, we bump up against the um, inadequacies of healthcare. So. So one big thing is to reorient the healthcare system, and I think palliative care as a field is trying to do that in, in, implicitly, and so I think that's a good idea. I'd like to be working on behalf of that, of a sort of cracking open healthcare and improving it as a system, and I guess that's the next point, is to think about, so if I'm trying to change anything, I'm interested in the systems changing. Like, I don't want to mandate that any one person go die a certain way. That is not, a, that's quite the opposite idea. Um, we're trying to make space for people to do what they need to do and to help people along the way do our best in service and to learn from people along the way. Um, but, but no, if I'm, if I, if anything needs to change, it's really the design of the systems that are meant to help take care of us. And that, and that includes being supportive to the clinicians at the bedside of the dying as well. I mean, it's a medical culture that needs to be changed too. Um, and that's where you're talking about the systems. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, so healthcare, medicine, it's the, the, the design of the system, the culture of these uh, institutions, et cetera, have done amazing work over the last 150 years, but we're also kind of coming up to, to the limitations and sort of, I, I call it a reckoning, like, you know, healthcare has, had to, has to come to terms with it, the fact that it can't fix everything and that it can't do everything and not, that, that the biomedical model isn't the only way to look at life. <clears throat> uh, and that's no, there's no shame in any of that. Healthcare does wonderful work. It just can't pretend to be everything for everybody the way it's currently configured. And yet the population, we all, they've kind of taken over, you know, the hospital is a modern church. So we've, we're guilty in a public too, for, I think, putting too much on medicine, expecting too much out of it, uh, asking for miracles, expecting that things, everything can be fixed. Um, so I think there's a, there's a very interesting collusion between the public and the professions that happens around this subject. Um, but in any event, yes. Yeah, so to your point, 
the culture needs to shift. The systems need to be updated. Absolutely. And and the public needs to be engaged in a very new and different and larger way. Tell me a little bit about the Center of Dying and Living that you've created. So the Center for Dying Living is part of the message that 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 dying, that addressing death, that thinking about the finitude of time has a way of improving how we live. So it's not that those of us in the field and those of us who work in hospice, as you well know, you, you feel like you're sitting on this secret, like, oh, to turn your attention actually towards this thing that most of us are afraid of pays you back in very interesting ways. And the phrase that comes up in hospice all the time among patients and families and others is, why do I wait? Why did I wait so long to deal with this? Not just to get it like cross it off your to-do list, but because it informs the way you think about your time and your life and what's important to you. So, so the idea would be for us as a species to kind of advance ourselves a little bit by virtue of facing death, by virtue of facing the things that we can't change. That that feels sort of evolutionary. So if you start with that and then you go from there. So you work inductively up back up from the end point and start designing the life you want to live. Because you, know, you talk about dying or death and dying, and within about five minutes, you realize what you're talking about is living <laughs> living until you die is, <laughs> is really the gist. Well, for me, once, once you acknowledge that something's going to end, it makes it so much more important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it really does. Well, it's the, it is the thing. The fact that it ends is what makes it precious. You know, if, if, if everything went forever, there would be no value to anything. You would take everything for granted and nothing would – there would be no uh, poignancy. So, right. I think that's an important piece of this puzzle. So, you mentioned a book. And so, can you, can you give us any hints about that book? Yeah. So, Shoshana Berger is my co-author. And she and I um, – she's a journalist and an author and a designer. She uh, is an editorial director at IDEO. And she started Ready Made Magazine. And uh, has done all sorts of cool things. So it's going to be about design and death? The working title is How to Die a Field Guide. So it's just meant to be this very basic, uh, for a general audience, uh, sort of a guidebook to here's what you have to think, here's how you talk about your doctor, here's what you have to think about, here's some basics of symptom management, here's how to address uh, advanced care planning, just really rudimentary stuff. Um, but as like as it says, as a, as a guidebook, um, so that that's the book, and that that's 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 the most consuming thing right now. And that's coming out uh, maybe this fall. Well, no, we have to hand it in this fall. It'll uh, I be, gotcha. It'll be it'll be in the publisher's hand in September, and then it'll probably come out, uh, you know, mid year twenty eighteen. So, how does it feel being a writer? Oh man, it's not easy. I mean, one thing that's been so fun for me is a from a professional standpoint, I've gotten to do a bunch of different things. I mean, the subject matter is so huge; you can you can go in various directions. And I've gotten to be an administrator, a teacher, or a clinician, uh, and now writing. I mean, I it's just it, it it's crazy making because I, I I keep finding myself doing things that I'm not really. Um, What's the word? <laughs> Skilled or prepared to do? You know, <laughs> so and writing is the latest. How do you see design being a part of this whole end of life journey that's changing? Um, because that's that's what I see. I feel this movement. A lot of 
a lot of new words, especially on a San Francisco about design. I mean, Tim Brown inspired Death by Design, you know, my my company, my book. Um, you know, so where do you see design playing a role in this whole end of life journey that we're all on? I think design thinking uh, and human centrism has a lot to has a, is basically what palliative care is trying to do within healthcare is to try to cut uh, cut a path uh, orienting around human beings, and that's what uh, design has done now for a while. And so there's something to learn there. Um, I think. You, in design, you have uh, an ethnographic approach, a social science approach. You have um, systems and efforts going into making an experience better. And it sounds a lot like what palliative care tries to do, is to bring a bunch of disciplines around a person and to help make things better, make things as good as can be. Working with limitations of, of time and space and material, etc., to creatively adapt to a certain situation. So there's just a lot of crossover thematically between design and palliative care. Um, So there's sort of ready-made bedmates. And then I think uh, part of, again, part of of the, the call to arms here is that the system itself, the invented stuff is what really needs some effort right now. I'm not, I'm not mad at mother nature that we die. I get mad at the healthcare system that it's inadequate to setting out to do what it says it's going to do. I, so I'm, I get upset at the, the, the human flaws and failings that happen in the healthcare system. I don't get upset that we die. I don't get upset that cancer exists per se. Um, so we've got some systems issues to work on and design can help us do that. It works on things. It works on experience. Um, so an emotion, it works on emotion. Exactly. So, and, Right. So you've got all that uh, thematic crossover. You've got all that need and the call to arms around systems redesign. And then you've got then you've got design as good sort of uh, civic uh, minded folks who can participate like healthcare if it chooses into this larger effort, something larger than itself, that design could commit to a civic orientation with its work, that healthcare would commit to a civic orientation, and that, like individuals, they'd start um, working with each other towards something that's larger than both of their fields. So you're you're getting some attention, um, you yourself. I, I heard, you know, you met someone called Oprah Winfrey lately on Super Soul Sunday. How was that? That was fascinating. I mean, that was a t- that was like a year and a half ago. So it was strangely taped a long, long time ago before it showed. Um, at that point, I was still at Zen Hospice Project. So, uh, so it, it was so anyway. It was a long time ago. It was a very surreal experience. You know, I mean, what do you do when Oprah calls you? Uh, you say yes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> what you do, uh, you come running. I mean, she's a remarkable person. And think about the work. Think about the effect she's had on the planet. Um, it's amazing. So it was a great honor to meet her. Very uh, surreal experience, you know, you can imagine. Um, but I was just thrilled that someone like her was turning her attention to our subject. Um, and just as part of the optimism I'm feeling right now that this is, there's there's something going on. There's a drumbeat happening. Yeah. And that's, that's what's so surprising is that Oprah is talking about death and dying. You have some of these individuals that are known internationally. And why do you think that is? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think there are a couple things. One is, um, 
I think that there's the I mean, you could say the the baby boomer generation, the aging population, 80 million baby boomers in the U.S., uh, 10,000 a day hitting the Medicare rolls. I mean, there's this uh, uh, growing awareness that our population is aging and that we're going to be dealing with this subject uh, in a volume that we've never seen before. So there's, I think that's a piece of the puzzle. There's, a, there's an understanding of that. I think the second piece of the puzzle is that healthcare as a system, um, which has become the sort of de facto go-to place for death, which, like we say, it doesn't necessarily deserve that, but uh, that has been its de facto home. And for the last however many years, healthcare policy has been has been debated publicly in the U.S. So there's a coming to terms with that the healthcare system may be broken and it may be show its 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 breaks most consistently towards the end of life. Um, so you've got that piece, a uh, policy angle that's being reimagined, and then I think the third piece for me, I think it has something to do with climate change too. I feel like that there's this large-scale, globalized moment happening where we realize, holy cow, first of all, we're all affecting each other. We're, we're, it's not, pollution doesn't stop at the border. Um, the effect that humans have had on the planet, most of us uh, see that there, that has become a problem. Um, most of us see that what I do here will affect people halfway around the world, et cetera. So there's this, there's this waking up to our interdependence and to the preciousness of what we've taken for granted for so long and the fact that, holy cow, um, maybe we've really screwed things up here and maybe we were hurtling ourselves and other species towards a demise in some way. I mean, this is, I'm not talking science fiction. This is, you know, front page standard new stuff now. So I got to believe that that has something to do with the public saying, whoa, what is part of this sort of shakedown? that this subject is cropping up. Now, do you think the baby boomers are going to change end of life like they changed the birthing process? I do. I mean, I think that's part of what's happening right now. So it's not just 80 million people who are aging as, as a generation who are aging. Uh, so it's a volume issue, a volume of people, but it is the baby boomer generation, a, a generation that's taken on every convention that it's come across and, and reworked it. So I, why why would be the end of why would the end of life be any different? In, in, in some ways, I would imagine it's going to really galvanize people's creative juice. I mean, I think that's another theme here. We haven't quite touched on that language of like what are we trying to as part of this reorientation that we're talking about here. There is a real creative call happening right now. Again, about creatively creating systems, but for ourselves, creating a life while we have it to live. These are all cre- adaptive, creative enterprises. So. And the the boomers, they, you know, they that that's what they do. So um, so anyway, so I do I do believe that they're a big part by volume and by nature, a big part of how this all is going to shift for the better. Well, and I do believe that Generation X is going to pick up right where they end off, and we already are. I mean, because I mean that's who you and I are, um, and you know, Shoshana, and there's a lot of individuals in their late 30s and early 40s that are just going to die differently because we want to have control. Yeah. Well, that's for sure. Our generation is going to do its part, but what's also very exciting is I'm looking at millennials, like the, um, the digital the, age. Yeah. The, I mean, the whole, the conventionally we were told when I was trying to like, um, you know, involved in fundraising for the hospice and stuff. And we were always thinking about who would want to participate in with us as an organization. And we would always hear ourselves right off like you know, young people aren't going to be interested in this. So we got to talk to older people. That's 
that's not just proven not true. I mean, um, I, I've been really impressed by groups like uh, like the Dinner Party, um, you know, uh, Lennon Flowers organization that really has done amazing work around getting getting millennials specifically around a table to talk about grief and loss. That's a just a gorgeous effort that they're doing. I also think there's like a, a group, I think it's called the Peace Team. I, I hope that's right. In UK, that is tackling college campuses to talk about death and dying. Wow. Well, great. I hadn't heard that. I mean, this is, I mean, right. So there's all sorts of things that I'm sure you and I have done even aware of that are happening. I mean, so there's something going on intergenerational uh, that's very exciting. So yes, baby boomers, amen, generation Xers like ourselves, generation Y, millennials. I mean, again, the thing I get so jazzed about, this subject does touch everybody. So we're going to have this creative explosion and it's going to be looked at from different angles, from various lenses. And that's chaotic, but really thrilling. It is thrilling. So tell me to, to close, um, you're going to be at a conference in December called Well in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Um, I, I plan to attend because I think that this conference is one of the most exciting things I've seen um, when you are talking about bringing people from design and IDEO, you're speaking and several other people that we know are speaking. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what Well conference is? What is that? What's going to happen? So, you know, it's in the works now. They're, they're, the guys are putting it together as we speak. But it is, it's meant to be a one-day sort of immersive experience. You know, another thing that the design world has helped us understand that this is that dying, that dealing with illness, these are experiences. They're not moments. They're not an episode. They're not an anomaly. They're an experience that you go through. And that's, that's you can you can play with your experience. So, end well. Shoshana Ungerleiter uh, is is putting this together in in a, in a novel way. So it is, she's got uh, medical folks, but she's got the social scientists, the artists, philosophers. She's beginning to do with this conference do the subject a better justice as being much larger, like you and I have been talking this whole time, much larger than healthcare. So that's the the gist of it. And people are going to be you know be welcome to to. Um, to participate in the conference from any angle, pretty much. You don't have to be a patient. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to be anything. Uh, I think that's a big difference. You know, I've been to a gazillion conferences within healthcare, and they're all doctors or they're maybe doctors and nurses and social workers or whatever else, but they're all professional caregivers in the, in the, in the industry. This is trying to cross sectors. Well, I love it. And I look forward. I've never been to San Francisco. And um, I know a lot of people say you leave your heart in San Francisco. I think I want to die in San Francisco because yeah. <laughs> because it, it's so innovative. But I look forward to to seeing you in San Francisco come this December. Um, I can't tell you how much I admire you and what you have done and what you are doing. Um, I look forward to this book. And I just appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy. And I just think something about design, creative, the medical field, the culture, it's all colliding. And I agree with you. I think it's so exciting. And I really do appreciate your time today. Thank you, Kim. That's so nice. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. And thank you for what you're doing. This is all, all part of the same drumbeat. Again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.